pray together. Lord, our desire is that your name might indeed be blessed, be praised during this time in your word. Lord, for that to happen, though, we need much more than a reading, much more than a sermon, much more than a preacher. We need your spirit. And Father, I pray that you would send him now to ripple amongst this congregation, that we might see Jesus, and that we might respond in praise. In his perfect name we ask it. Amen. Please be seated. So a couple of weeks ago, I told you the story about when I borrowed my friend's truck and proceeded to uh, put a big dent in it by backing it into, of all things, my house. Um, proof that the gospel is true. You ready for this? Proof that the gospel... Here's some apologetics for you. He lent me his truck again. <laughs> Jesus reigns. Hallelujah. Um, There was more drama with cars this week, thankfully uh, not of my own making. I was out for lunch with David Stevenson, and we were at at Moby Dick's uh, Kebab House, just in Old Dominion, a great spot for some some good meat. And uh, we had a good lunch, and then we came outside, and we were standing in the parking lot, and we were kind of finishing off our conversation, so we were sort of lingering there in the parking lot. And this other guy gets into a really nice SUV and starts to back up to make his way out of the parking lot. And he's going real slow, but he is moving steadily towards this really flashy black sports car and he's sort of going slow enough that I thought oh he's seen him and he's just being really careful and I don't know if David, David thought the same thing I, I don't know we're just standing there and he keeps on going and he keeps on going and he keeps on going and we kind of wave and say too late crunch this really nice sports car has this sort of paint mark and dent the guy just in sort of Reacts, uh, pulls forward and jumps out his car but he's left it in neutral and so he starts to back up toward the car again <laughs> just an absolute disaster um, I doubt he is but if you're here I understand your pain Okay, I back, this is the guy who backed into his own house all right? um, the funniest bit though happened a few moments later we're, we're standing there kind of looking awkwardly and David actually said I feel embarrassed for him which I thought was great and then the owner of the flashy black car comes out of the restaurant, and I'm telling you, this guy, he is jacked, okay? He is like as wide as he is high, his neck's like my waist, his arms are like my thighs, he's just like a really muscly dude, and we're kind of like, oh. <laughs> <laughs> Not like to hit that dude's car. And then David and I were kind of like, see you later, right? <laughs> and we both left. And if the jacked guy is here, you looked good, okay? I'm not saying anything else. Um, you know, sometimes in my truck are like our friend at Moby Dick's. It's really important to see what's right in front of you. It's really important to see what's right in front of you. If not, you may wreck. And this leads us into the point that we're going to focus on in our text this morning. There's a lot we could draw from it. We're going to look at one thing. One thing from this text, that the king is here. Palm Sunday tells us that the king is here, but we need to see him. We need to see him. The king is here, but we need to see him. It's important to see what is right before our eyes. Let's pick up our text and pick up our imaginations and jump into verse 12, where we read that the next day the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming 
to Jerusalem. So people from all over the country, from all over Israel, have descended upon Jerusalem for the Passover feast, a very important uh, season and uh, celebration in the Jewish calendar. They are there uh, for uh, Passover. And a rumor has spread through the pack that Jesus is now on his way to Jerusalem. Jesus, by this point, is a very well-known figure in the region. He has been on an extensive teaching and preaching tour where he has gone to many of the local neighborhoods, and they have heard him teach, and they have heard him preach with authority, not like the rulers they are used to. They have heard him speak words of grace, words of truth, and they have been impacted by his message. But many of them have not just heard him preach, they have seen him do remarkable things. They have seen him multiply bread so that it will feed thousands. They have seen him restore sight to the blind. They have seen him raise someone from the dead just one chapter before this in John chapter 11. And they've been impressed by these deeds. Wouldn't we be impressed if someone came with such power and such Authority, So he is becoming a well-known figure in the region. And everyone is excited because there are reports that this man who can teach with authority and do these miraculous things is going to be Israel's new king. He is going to be the king of Israel. And so the people are pressed together in this crowd. They are in a celebratory mood. It is loud and they're stepping on each other's sandals and there's a sense of anticipation rippling through the crowd because Jesus is on his way. It's kind of like the excitement when the lights go out and the band is about to come on stage. There is this mass group of people there with a great sense of anticipation. Now someone has a great idea. Someone who is sold on the fact that Jesus is the king says, let's go and meet Jesus on his way in. Verse 30. They took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the king of Israel. Hosanna, they say. They gather these palm branches, which symbolize victory. That's what palm branches, their import or their significance. They symbolize victory. And so when you wave them, you are celebrating victory. And they start handing them out to the crowd saying that the king is coming. And you can just imagine how the excitement would have grown to a fervor within this crowd. Some of them run ahead and see Jesus coming on his way in and they cry, Hosanna. And those who are following in the rear join in the chorus of Hosanna and add, blessed be the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. And then this jubilation, this adoration, this celebration parts into two to either side of the street. As Jesus makes his way in the middle. Now Jesus, as he often does, sees the commotion ahead of him, smiles, and does something kind of unusual. And this is part of Jesus's MO. God really deals with us in the way that we might expect. And so here in verse 14, he does something unusual. He, we read that he finds a young donkey and sits on it and rides into Jerusalem. Matthew tells us that he has sent his disciples ahead of him to find this donkey for him. So there's been a lot of forethought into this action. And then he sees the crowds, he finds the donkey, he hops on and he, and he rides in. What, what's, what's going on here? What's going on here is verse 15. Exactly what God said would happen. Verse 15. Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, 
Your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. 500 years before this great Palm Sunday, God had promised that the king would come and that the king would be riding on a donkey. Let's turn there. Zechariah. Zechariah chapter 9. It's the second last book of your Old Testament. I love this passage. Someone, I forgot from the first service. Someone give me a page number in our pew Bible. Zechariah is hard to find. 797. 797. Excellent. 797, Zechariah chapter 9. And pick up in verse 9, where we read, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he. Humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. The passage goes on to speak about how this king who comes in humility will be the one who is able to bring peace to the people and freedom to the people. He will have a reign, we read in verse 10, that will extend from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. Jesus comes riding on a donkey to fulfill the prophecy that was spoken about him some 500 years before. And so it's this incredible scene that we have. We have Jesus here fulfilling prophecy. We have the crowds in great celebration and uh, there's great uh, rejoicing. This uh, coronation is about to take place. And uh, they symbolize this happiness, this celebration, this victory uh, by the waving of the palm branches. The king is here. That's what's taking place in John chapter 12. But it's important for us to note that not everyone there that day realized the full significance of what was happening. Though they had the prophecy, not everyone really understood what was happening that day. Many in the crowd thought that Jesus was here to be the king, but the king in an earthly or political sense. So yes, he would bring peace and he would bring freedom, but not spiritually from the bondage that they were in. He would end the foreign occupation and usher in a new day for the people of Israel. And so they are delighted and they celebrate because they think that a political solution has arrived, one who will lead the charge against enemy forces, and they are prepared to throw their weight behind the cause. And so they wave their palm branches, but they wave them to symbolize this political victory that they hoped would soon be theirs. But it's not just some in the crowd that don't really understand what's happening here. Look with me at verse 16, where we see that the disciples are confused also. His disciples did not understand these things at first. But when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. In other words, as this great Palm Sunday occurs, as they are riding into Jerusalem, they don't fully understand what's happening. And it's not until Jesus has died, has been resurrected, and has ascended up into heaven that they begin to connect the dots in their minds. I love how it says that they began to understand um, and remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. I just imagine one of the disciples on a sleepy morning and Let's make it Bartholomew, because Bartholomew never gets any press. So <laughs> Bartholomew, one of the disciples, is there, and he's got his morning coffee, and he's doing his morning devotional, and he's working through Zechariah, like you do, 
And he comes to verse 9 of chapter 9 in Zechariah and he reads, Your king is coming, humble and mounted on a donkey. And he thinks about it and then the light bulb goes off. And he realizes what this passage is about. And he realizes that he's seen it uh, fulfilled. And just imagine him uh, rushing through to the other disciples and waking them up and saying, Hey, do you remember that day when we went into Jerusalem? And remember how Simon and Andrew were really upset because Jesus had sent them on this weird task to get a donkey. And then we rode in and everyone celebrated. Remember that day? God told us that was going to happen. God told us that was going to happen here in Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9. And it is confirmed what we knew to be true, that Jesus is the king. Jesus is the king. Palm Sunday shows us that the king is here fulfilling the word that was spoken long before. But not everyone had the eyes to see it. Many in the crowd did not have the eyes to see it. Many of the disciples did not have the eyes to see it. And dare I say on this Palm Sunday as Jesus marches into McLean that many of us don't see it either. We don't really grasp the full significance of the fact that the king is here. Reminds me of a, a documentary I listened to on the radio not so long ago that reported on a relationship, a romantic relationship that bloomed between a couple called Sarita and Simon. Sarita first spotted Simon in her freshman year at college. She was with the other girls in the lunchroom and they were kind of scoping out the guys and her eye got drawn to this one particular guy who had olive skin and thick hair and who was making really intense eye contact with her. And so intrigued, she approached him and they connected and they became friends and an intense relationship developed. During this time, Sarita discovered that Simon has a really unusual condition. It's a condition called prosopagnosia or face blindness. Proso is the Greek for face, agnosia, the Greek for inability, and it basically leaves the person with this condition unable to recognize or remember faces. Unable to recognize or remember faces because of a developmental problem in the brain. Simon describes it as like going into the forest or going into a wood and examining all the trees. And as you look at the bark, you can tell that one tree is different to the other. There's different shapes, contours, colors. And yet, when you go away, you could never remember a thousand of them. And in the same way, faces just don't fix in his mind. He can see them and he can see the differences, but he just can't remember. This led to uh, a relationship with some great quirks. If they met in public, she had to wave first so that he knew it was her. Um, she actually had a backpack, like a very distinctive backpack that she would wear because he, he was able to remember that. And they laughed, you know, you remember my bag, but you don't remember my face. Um, she would make sure to, to speak as she approached him because he knew her voice. And so they had ways to work around the quirkiness of their relationship. <laughs> From time to time, Simon himself would find himself in um, awkward situations because he would be waving and smiling at the wrong curly-haired woman. Um, and it turns out that the intense eye contact he made, he made with everyone because he was trying to figure out if he knew them. Right? <laughs> but none of this bothered Sarita because she'd fallen, fallen in love and uh, they 
uh, graduated and moved in together in Philadelphia and began uh, the journey of life, enjoying it with one another. A couple years later, about 18 months or so, uh, though, um, Simon breaks up with her, splits up with her. And from her perspective, she never gets a very solid reason, as sometimes happens. And so she's confused and she's heartbroken and it's, it's really difficult for her to get uh, over him. In the coming days, they see each other around at parties. They have some mutual friends, but it just becomes too hard and they decide that they need that good, clean break that you need after an intense relationship. And so they don't see each other for many months. Then one day, Sarita is walking past the restaurant where Simon works and he is out on the patio serving drinks and she stands and she stares at him with that combination of warmth and sorrow uh, indicative of the fact that she's not got over him yet and he looks up and he sees her and he smiles vaguely and he moves on because he doesn't recognize her. Her face has blurred back amongst the trees and after months of separation he is unable to fix it in his mind. When told about this in the documentary, he said, I didn't know that, I didn't know that she had seen me and that I hadn't recognized her. It's hard somehow that I wouldn't see her. It's like she faded back into the crowd quickly. It's actually haunting to me to hear that. Why do I share this story? I share this story because for that couple, we see, and on Pam Sunday, we see that love can look you straight in the eye and you don't even see it. Jesus is here and he's looking you straight in the eye, but you might be missing him. You might not even realize. Many of us suffer with spiritual prosopagnosia, spiritual face blindness, where the king is here, but we don't really see him. And how often is that, is that the case for us? That we hear the gospel and in a sense we know it's true. That you are valued by God. That you are precious to him. That he loves you and has done everything that needed to be done to secure your forgiveness by his grace. Anyone who comes to him in Jesus is welcomed into the fold, drawn near and secured for eternity. These words are true. They are gospel truths. And yet, though you know them, they don't quite have the impact upon your life that they ought to. And so we find that the face of Jesus is seen for a moment in worship or in church, but then fades back into the trees throughout the week. That the lines in his face are clear to us at moments, but then become faded and blurred as we go about our days. Come Sunday tells us that the king is here, that victory has arrived, that love now stares you in the eyes. And he hasn't come to bring condemnation, but he's come to bring peace. And he hasn't come to give you a to-do list, but he's come to give you freedom. And he hasn't come to say, I'm here for all who appease me. He's come to say, I'm here for all who see me. Love is staring us in the face. Grace is here. Let's not allow him to fade into the tree. If you do see him, if you do see him, then ready the palm of praise.
ready the palm branch of praise. And I actually mean this literally. The Bible uses figures and images. We do the same, but sometimes things are, are meant to be taken literally. Uh, <clears throat> this uh, whole confusion over when to take things literally actually came up in my house this week. Uh, my four-year-old turned five, and she continues the inexorable march towards adulthood that I can do nothing about. And um, she turned five, and she woke up on Wednesday morning, and she said, um, oh, I'll get ready for school. And we were like, hmm? she's not in school. And then she said, you said I go to school when I'm five. <laughs> and we were like, yes, we did. <laughs> and it's one of the many, many examples in which as a parent, you kind of do things right and it still goes wrong. Okay? Um, and we had to explain, no, we didn't mean that literally. Sometimes you're not meant to take things literally. Other times you are meant to take things literally. And if you see Jesus, then we must literally get ready to praise him through the waving of the branches. Toward the end of his life, John, who wrote this gospel, met with Jesus again. And Jesus pulled back the curtain of heaven itself to give him a glimpse of what it would look like. Turn with me to Revelation. Last book of your Bible. Easy to find. Very last one. Revelation chapter 7. Read a couple of verses, starting in verse 9. So John, this disciple who was, who was there on this day, now meets with Jesus again. And we read, After this I, John, looked, and behold, this vision of heaven, a great multitude that no one could number. I love that phrase, because we can count really high. We can number a really high number. And yet, in heaven, there is going to be more saved than we can even reckon. And quick, just quick sidetrack here. Remember that, that God is on a mission to save a multitude we can't count. And when God speaks of the number of people who are going to be saved, he uses pictures like this, and he uses pictures like stars in the sky and the sand on the seashore. He does not use pictures that imply very few are going to be saved. We are joyfully Calvinist, and we believe that God has predestined many for salvation. Many for salvation. So, we're in a crowd much bigger than the crowd that met on Palm Sunday that day. Uh, behold, multitude no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages. I love this. From Germany and Romania and Cuba and Cambodia and Tanzania and Kenya and all the flags down the side and all the flags in the entire world. They're all gathered there that day. Much more diversity than met in Jerusalem. We find that we are there in this crowd standing before the throne and before the Lamb clothed in white robes before the lamb who is Jesus, the lamb who has been slain, wearing white robes. Why? Because all our sin and all our guilt has been taken away, covered in his righteousness. I love that it says later on, uh, where is it in verse uh, 40, that the robes are white because they've been washed in blood. Isn't that a strange picture? It's a strange image that something that is literally blood red would produce something that is white as snow, such as the power of his blood. Standing there in these robes, and what are we doing? With palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. With palm branches in our hands, crying out 
our own hosannas. And so you see, I'm closing up here. Give me two more minutes, okay? You see, Palm Sunday, John 12, is just a foretaste of the eternal Palm Sunday. (laughs) The Sabbath of the soul that is ours in heaven. And the waving of the branches in John 12 just points toward and directs our attention toward the waving of the branches that will take place in heaven itself, where we gather and celebrate not some mere earthly political victory, but an eternal spiritual victory whereby our souls have been saved by Christ. And so the one who has scars in his palms comes and places the palm branch in your palm. And we wave it to celebrate. I pray that the Spirit of God would ripple through us like the rumors ripple through the crowd. And that we would have the faith to see these things and know that they're true. It's one of those really humbling passages as a preacher where you look at it and you think about it and you pray about it and you try to come up with some good illustrations. And in the end, you've got nothing. (laughs) Because nothing can communicate the glory that is to come other than the Spirit of God testifying to it in your heart. And if you feel it, then this is assurance of your salvation. Because what is at work in you saying, Amen, these things are true, is God himself ministering to you by his grace. If you see Jesus on Palm Sunday, you'll see him forever. King is here. We don't want to miss him. But to get us from here to there, <laughs> to get us from Claim Presbyterian Church to the glory of heaven, Jesus had to go through Holy Week. He had to walk through the week ahead. The week that began on Palm Sunday, but didn't end until Easter Sunday. And this week we're going to follow. We start today by remembering when he entered Jerusalem as king. We're going to continue on Thursday. Thursday night here in the sanctuary, 7.30 for a Monday-Thursday service. This is a service that remembers the time when Jesus met on that Thursday night of this week his disciples and gave them the Lord's Supper for the very first time. So we will meet together in his name, at his invitation to celebrate the Lord's Supper together, following his footsteps. Then on Friday of this week, the day Jesus went to the cross. Good Friday because of what it accomplished for us as he hung for three hours on that day. So we will meet together here in the sanctuary for three hours, from 12 until 3. We break it up into one-hour segments. If you can only make it to one, then come along and join us for a really silent, reflective, meditative time of worship as we think about the cost of what it took to get us from here to there. And then on Sunday, we celebrate. We celebrate. Because death could not hold him. He is risen again. And at 8, 9.30 and 11, we're going to celebrate. We celebrate the gospel that is ours. I hope and pray that as a people, as a church, as a family this week, we will be conscious to follow in his footsteps. Follow in his footsteps. That we having seen the palms that were waved on Good Friday, on, on uh, this Sunday, will uh, fix our eyes on him 
and receive those branches to wave in eternity. Let's pray. Father, this Easter we want to see Jesus. We don't want to back our lives into spiritual wreck. We want a secure, eternal happiness that is found in him and in him alone. And Father, there are no readings, there are no words, there are no illustrations, there are no pictures, there is nothing we can do in and of ourselves to really understand the extent of what you have done for us. And so we ask for your spirit to come, to gladden our hearts, and to make us a people who rejoice, because Jesus the King is here, and we see him clearly. We pray these things in his perfect name, glad and grateful for this time. Amen.